0: Brothers and sisters, please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to be now focusing on 18 through 25. It's the same section, same um, topic that we've been on, um, verses 5 through um, 25 is the text, but we're not going to keep reading all of that. We'll just simply read this morning, 18 through 25. Um, This is the second part of the chiasm that we began looking at, or that we've seen. And last week we looked at the center. Um, So now we're on that last part of the chiasm. Uh, Two more sections for us. And uh, um, very essential, very important part of this message to us. This is God's word, brothers and sisters. Let me invite you to stand together with me in the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of King Jesus. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. And the people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And it came about when the days of his priestly service were ended that he went back home. And after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying... This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. That's far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. It's incredible deposit of a treasure that is beyond worth. Lord, thank you for giving us, um, a, a, granting us the grace to live in a land where we can open your word uh, publicly, at least for now and uh, read and study it without fear of reprisal or persecution lord bless this time now we pray may we not take it for granted but lord holy spirit work within us and take your word and penetrate it deep within our hearts and grow us grow us deep in your grace deep in our love and devotion and understanding and hunger and thirsting for you and deep in our service in your kingdom bless this time O lord use the foolishness of preaching To bring to pass your will in our lives this day, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. When I was a student up at CSU getting a degree in history, I took uh, my, my first ancient history class, which is what my focus was. And it was the ancient Near East. And it was a course that began with the earliest recorded civilization the Sumerians, and followed that down both in the the, uh, um, Indus Valley as well as the Egyptian uh, or or, or the Nile, um, right? And looking at those civilizations, including Israel, um, from... 5000 BC, all the way down to into Rome. He didn't finish Rome, but into Rome. And as a student of the Bible, as a Christian, as someone who was thinking of going uh, to seminary, this class was amazing. I was so excited to take it, and I was so excited to actually go through it. It was wonderful. However, early on in the class, it was brought out in the lectures that the flood story, creation story, the fall, and many other such things in Scripture... Have predated counterparts in the other cultures of the world in which God's people lived. The flood stories predated by a thousand plus years in different cultures. The creation story, the Ten Commandments have their counterpart in Babylon, and it predates the Ten Commandments. All those ancient uh, peoples had their heroes, including uh, just like our heroes. And I remember leaving that class multiple days. It wasn't all at one. It wasn't one lecture. It was over the the course of a couple months. I heard about all of of this. And uh, um, um, sporadically, as we left those classes, on those days that this was shared, I'd hear people scoffing at Christ, scoffing at Christianity, saying, yeah, it borrowed. Christianity is a borrowed religion. But I knew my professor was a believer. He was my I'm advisor. He went to Dallas Seminary. He was a, a solid believer, led a Bible study on campus as a faculty member. So I knew that there was an answer. How, does the, how do we as God's people answer that? And to my surprise, he brought that to the classroom. Three-fourths of the way through, he did a lecture, 30 minutes at the end of a class, a lecture, not comparing, but contrasting the Bible the Bible, uh, what the, the literature of God's word with the literature that surrounds it from the ancient world. And what he said is when you compare the biblical um, description of creation with the biblical description of creation or the, not the, the uh, secular description of creation, say the Sumerians, what you find is, is that the Bible is written as a correction. It was not written as a copy. It was written to correct what no doubt God's people living at that time would have heard from the various and sundry nations around them. God's word was not copying the ancient world text. It was correcting the ancient world text, teaching God's people the truth, teaching all people the truth. Then he talked about the people. He said the most crazy thing the most conspicuous thing about scripture and the heroes of the bible is they're all flawed every one of them unlike gilgamesh unlike achilles unlike many of the heroes the demigods and the men and women who were prized as heroes in the ancient world our heroes the biblical heroes are incredibly flawed incredibly sinful noah had a drinking problem abraham was a liar as was his grandson jacob david was an adulterer and a murderer um, samson was an idolater or no, i'm sorry i got him wrong a womanizer and it's samuel or a uh, uh, solomon who was an idolater i mean all of the biblical heroes are incredibly flawed why why Unlike the ancient world, that's what, again, makes the Bible stand out as a completely different literature. Because unlike the ancient world, our heroes are all sinful. Why? Well, 1 Corinthians 1 gives us one of many verses that we can answer it with. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify things that are that no man should boast before God, for, God, for by his doing, his doing, you're in Christ Jesus. So one of the, the, the peculiarities of Scripture is God's heroes, our heroes, people presented before us as these people who, have, who should be envied, or I'm sorry, emulated, is, there, is, is, is when they do things morally enviable. But yet all these morally enviable people are flawed and they sin and they fail just like you and me. And our passage this morning is a representation of that very truth. Last week I mentioned that, you know, if you read this verse, I don't know if you, or this passage and I tend to read scripture. And when I read heroes in scripture, I, I like to think of myself that if I was living that day, I'd be there, right? I wouldn't be one of the people who bowed their knees to, to Baal. I'd be one of those faithful. I wouldn't be those people rebelling against God in the wilderness. I'd be like Josh or, or, or uh, Joshua or, or Caleb, right? I, I'd be those guys. Um, well, brothers and sisters, I'd want to be Zacharias. But Zacharias was an incredibly flawed person, which gives you and me so much hope. The focus of this, remember, the focus of the prologue of John was that every time you read through the gospel of John and the rest of the gospels, you must bear in mind that the Christ that is being described here is an infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God in the flesh. Read the gospels like that. It changes the way you you will read them. Secondly, this prologue, gives us the focus of this prologue of this chiasm was and is the eternal redemptive plan of god john the baptizer christ everything occurred according to god's eternal and infinite plan that's the prologue that's the point but what's incredible about this chiasm is you think well if that's the center then the other parts are not important a b and a prime b prime those aren't important when brothers and sisters they flesh out the message they give flesh and bones. They make the, the, uh, the message of the chiasm human, where we live. Yes, God is the eternal God with an eternal plan, but He uses flawed people like you and me, and we can, and that doesn't even thwart His will, and that's the focus of the backstory this morning. We're on the backstory, what I've titled the human backstory, and this morning, as I'd love to get through the whole thing today, I my study, I got bogged down, and maybe that's a bad thing for some of you, but hopefully it's not too bad. I got bogged down. We're going to look at just the very first point, verse 18. Notice the frailty of our flesh, verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this for certain, for I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. This is a shocking statement, a shocking response. Let's be aware of the backstory, or not not the backstory, the background. Okay, let's look at where we've been. Number one, notice his his inability. Throughout their married life, we know from this passage that Zacharias and his wife were barren; they couldn't have kids. And now he's at an advanced age, such that he's too old. They're too old to have kids. They're just like Abraham and Sarah. That brings us then to his burden. Though they were godly, verse six. Look at verse 6. They were both righteous in the sight of God. They were saved. They had a right standing before God. That's the idea. And we understand this is because of the imputation of grace, right? The imputation of God's grace. They were righteous because of God's grace, because of Christ. And because of that, would you notice that righteous standing led them, verse 6, to walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. So they were genuine servants who genuinely loved Christ, who genuinely served him in their lives, but on their neck was this scarlet letter because they were barren. John 9 is very clear. Read John 9, 1 and 2, and you'll see how the the, uh, uh, temporal idea in Judaism of what happens when people don't get what they want, what happens when people are struggling, what happens when people are born um, deformed. It's because of their sin, Sin is the reason. So it would have been understood that Zacharias and Elizabeth, yeah, they might look good, but there's something suspicious about them. They don't have any kids. And the fact that they don't have any kids makes me think and makes you think there's something flawed about them. What is going on behind their closed doors? So though Zacharias and Elizabeth were genuine servants of Christ, they would have been somewhat of a pariah in their, in their, their culture. And that brings us to his service. Yet, to to no doubt the amazement of many, Zacharias was chosen by lot, which means chosen by God, to serve in his temple. That man, that man, that man was chosen to serve in his temple that evening, to offer the evening sacrifice at the altar of, of incense, which meant he had all day to prepare. No doubt he would have been instructed quite well, reviewed. Hey, okay, this is the setup. This is what's going to happen. Et Here's your clothes. Make sure you wear these. Pull them on right. Don't let them flip, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But he also, that's externally, privately in his mind, maybe with his wife, as he went home and said, you'll never guess I was chosen. Together, they planned the prayer. No doubt. You would, I would. They planned what they were going to pray. What he would, would pray, because when everyone left the altar of incense, he would be there left alone before the holy curtain, before the Ark of the Covenant, separated by the holy curtain, to bow before the Lord and offer a prayer to God at this high and holy moment in his life. Incredible. And that brings us to his prayer. And based upon what we've seen, Gabriel, specifically his response to Zacharias, we understand he prayed for two things. He prayed for a child and that this child would um, be used by God to turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God, verse 16. prayed for both those things. Brothers and sisters, it's an interesting thing. We don't know what he prayed, but we know how, how um, Gabriel responded. That being said, he responded in such a way as if, the same exact way as if he prayed the same prayer that Hannah prayed when she was barren and being persecuted for, for not having children. Listen to Hannah's prayer, First Samuel 1. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thy maidservant and remember me and not forget thy maidservant, but will give thy maidservant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. will stop there. Think about that. That's what her prayer is. And what Gabriel said in response to Zacharias would be very similar, would, would comport very well with if, if Zacharias had prayed that, that prayer. So Zacharias most likely prayed, God, give, me, give us a son in our barrenness. Give us a son who would be able to serve you and bring back the hearts of your people to you. That was their heartbeat. And that's what shocks, shocks us when we read verse 18. Because we come to this verse and we say, are you crazy? Gabriel comes and says, yes. Thus says the Lord, the prayer you just prayed, God's answer is yes. And what does Gabriel say? Or what does Zacharias say? Verse 18, how shall I know this for certain? That's not in the original. How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years skip down to verse 20b gabriel accused zacharias you did not believe my words so zacharias's response floors us how could that be and and because it's so shocking that he would turn around if he prayed for what he prayed for what i'm suggesting and then he turns around and doubts you go that's just crazy because of that there are commentaries who say he didn't ask for a child He asked for a deliverer. We don't know what he asked for. Most likely a deliverer of Israel. But he clearly would not have asked for a child. Because no rational being would, would, would look at God and say, God, give me a child. And when God says yes, then say, how will I know for certain? Maybe you're thinking the same thing. Maybe you've read this and heard me preach and say, that's crazy, Greg. You're nuts. There's no way he prayed for a child. I wouldn't have done that. Would you have done that? I wouldn't have done that. Brothers and sisters, how lofty is our view of man, and how lofty is your view of yourself, if you think that. In fact, I'm going to make a contention today. I believe that not only do you do this in your walk with God, but you do it all the time. Turn with me to 2 Peter 1, or you'll see it up there. 2 Peter 1. I'm going to prove to you that that's not, that, yeah, it's irrational, but it's not unthinkable. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16, speaking of the Mount of Transfiguration where the disciples witnessed an unveiling of the true nature of Jesus Christ. This is God, Peter, James, and John. Wow. We read this. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty, and so His glory and His deity. When he, and for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, by God Almighty. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mount. Just as a footnote there. Brothers and sisters, this made Peter, James, and John a celebrity once Jesus Christ ascended. Based upon this passage... And, and what he's about ready uh, to say. Clearly, people were interested to see, to talk to Peter. That's the guy. James, that's the guy. John, that's the guy. Those are the men who saw this incredible, hey, Peter, tell us again. My faith's, my faith's weakening. Tell me again what you saw. John, tell me. Really, was it What is this, as, as glorious as Peter just said? Tell me, my faith's weakening. And what does Peter say here? He his brothers and sisters. He did not take advantage of the limelight. He, I mean, you could imagine with that story, he could have planted many a churches, many mega churches, and cost a, charged a lot of money, and he would have got a great following having that kind of a story. But you know what he says here? He says, family of God, stop asking me about this vision, this, this theophany, because you've got something more certain than my testimony notice the text and yet we have the prophetic word made more sure and this is the exhortation to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place brothers and sisters peter here is saying you have a greater authority a more majestic glorious uh, weighty authority in your life then uh, beholding the transfiguration of Jesus Christ in the flesh, then seeing a miracle, then listening to an angel tell you this is what God says. And his exhortation is, follow it. But that's our problem. We're just like Zacharias. You read the word of God, You read, God wants you to be holy. You say, God, make me holy. Oh, Lord, yes, make me holy. And then we leave and forget that we read it. And then God gives you trial and difficulty, which he uses as a vehicle to draw you closer to him. And then you say, God, why would you be so mean? You just prayed for holiness. And yet, God, why are you so mean? You know, I I don't go to church anymore. Why? Because... God took my son. I'm not teasing, brothers and sisters. I talked to a woman sharing the gospel with her, and that was her response. I do not go to church. Why? Because God took my son. I won't worship that being because he did this to me. Brothers and sisters, we're just like Zacharias. In fact, James gives this exhortation because of our um. Uh, a tendency to be just like Zacharias. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. For once he's looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. That's exactly what, Zach, what Zacharias did. He sat there and prayed, Oh God, give me a child. Oh God, raise up a deliverer. And then Gabriel comes and says, Amen. And he says, Give me proof. I don't believe it. I can't believe it. One man wrote, I'm not going to attempt to say his name. One man wrote, we can be righteous persons in the holiest places, carrying out the holiest acts of worship and not believe God. Unbelief is that sneaky. It can slither right into the middle of, a, of spiritual worship. You can be a preacher preaching the gospel and not believe anyone will be saved. You can be an evangelist on the street corner and not believe anyone will listen. I can't tell you how many times I prepared a sermon, knowing this is the word of God, living an active, sharp with a two-edged sword, that the, it will not come back void. And I come into this pulpit, furtive, going, oh, this is stupid. Not God's word. This is just, this is just stupid. No one's going to listen to it. This is such a bad sermon. Talk to anyone who preaches. Talk to Stuart. And he'll tell you there's never a sermon you've ever preached. You'll ever hear preached from me that I think is decent. You always have that sense of disbelief. Uh, how can that be well, the word of god is so black and white you're preaching it right you can be married and not believe your spouse is a gift from the lord you can pray for our heart's deepest desire and laced in the morrow of our prayer is a sneaky unbelief that was zachariah and that is many of us brothers and sisters i am not surprised that zacharias did that not surprised at all what i'm surprised is that God didn't just snuff him out at that moment. And we're going to get to that next week. That's the surprise. It's not how foolish is man. I don't need um, uh, much to, to, to know how foolish man is. And to see what we saw here is quite believable in light of my own frailty and futility and folly. So the question is this, why? Why? Why did Zacharias respond this way? And there's going to be some of you here today thinking it's because he wasn't really saved. Secondly, it's because he didn't know the word. He didn't understand the Lord. And I want to begin by saying that is absolutely categorically false. Two things. It was not for lack of spiritual resources that Zacharias or that you and I doubt. In verse 6, we read that Zacharias was righteous in the sight of God. Again, that means he was declared not guilty. He was saved. But then it goes on to say he was blameless before God in all the commandments. Do you understand what that means? Meditate on that for a second. God says in God's sight, Zacharias was blameless of all the requirements and commandments of God. That means of the 39 books of the Old Testament, he faithfully submitted to it. In part, that is why God's response to Zacharias is different from Abraham, right? God's word, Luke 12, for everyone who has been given much shall much be required, and to whom they are entrusted much of him they will ask all the more. Zacharias, brothers and sisters, is not Abraham who did not have any printed word from God. He had 39 books of the old testament which clearly he knew which clearly he submitted to which clearly he loved and which clearly he fellowship with god by him. otherwise he would not be blameless before god in all the commandments and requirements of god so you can't say well, the reason why he did that is because he because he didn't believe because he wasn't saved or he didn't have enough information he had it all just like you and me So be done with thinking, oh man, I I doubted God, I must not be saved. Oh man, I doubted God, I must be a bad person. And get this, we'll say it again later, all this doubting or all this, whatever it was that led Zacharias to where he was, did not disqualify him from ministry and it did not disqualify him from being a child of the living God. So be be at, at peace and be comforted. You're just like Zacharias, I'm just like Zacharias. Well, how do we explain this then? My answer to you is to fill in the blank. It ultimately is on account of an identity crisis. It's identity. Turn to First Samuel 17, or at least listen to it. First Samuel, you, re- you read of God's people in the valley of the law going against the Philistines. And a warrior, a mighty nine foot tall animal walked out from the, the front of the Philistine army, went into the Valley of Allah, and said, send out a champion and fight me. Now, brothers and sisters, he's facing the armies of God. The army of an infinite, almighty God, a God who has promised, Exodus fourteen fourteen, the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. God's told this nation, He's told his people, I will do the battle. Think of Jericho. Think of the conquest. What did God's people do? They marched around. God made the walls uh, fall down. Brothers and sisters, God proved himself time and time again. He parted the Red Sea. All of the things God has done, God's people knew. They understood. So this was not a lack of information at this time in 1 Samuel. This was not a lack of belief. What was it? It was a a, a false understanding of who or more importantly, whose they were. Because rather than coming out and fighting the Philistine, this giant Goliath, they went to their tents and huddled and quaked in their boots for 40 days. And then, this young man, David, the first Uber Eats person ever in history, brought food to their brothers, to his brothers, David. And he goes there and he hears the giant. And David's like, what? I'll go and fight. Now, brothers and sisters, what even is shocking about this is that the rest of of Israel, including the king, said, go for it. That's shocking. Why did David do that? Well, his brothers thought it was because he was proud. You're just arrogant. You're a showman. You want people to, to think, oh, look how great David is. Paul Tripp wrote these words. Was he arrogant? Was David delusional? No, he knew who he was. He understood what it means to be a child of the living God. David drew the right spiritual conclusion. It was not little him against this huge warrior. No, it was this puny Philistine warrior against Almighty God. God will fight for you while you keep silent. But see, God's people, they messed it. You know, this is their failed view of their identity. This was their flawed identity. Or in the words of, of Paul Tripp, they were identity amnesiacs. This was their problem. And I think it's most of our problems. We think that we are in the arena fighting against Goliath. And God is in the stands watching. And while we approach, we say, God, do something. And we pray harder, and we read more, and we study more, and we do all this moral stuff to try to move God to pity. God, do something. Brothers and sisters, that is such a false identity. Biblically speaking, what is our identity? It's that God's in the arena fighting against his and our giant enemies, not giant to God, giant to us. And we are uh, through us and we are privileged to have a front row seat to see how God's going to do it. Is that your identity? Do you think Don Cassie is, is, is thinking, this is God addressing cancer through me. And that address may be, he brings me home to glory. That address may be, he heals me. But this is not my responsibility. This is not on my, shoe, on, my uh, uh, what was it? I, on my porch. This is not my responsibility. Not my job. God's job. My job is to be faithful to serve God where he's placed me. Because, brothers and sisters, biblically, it's through us God interfaces with the world. So it's never us against the enemies of God. It's always God against the enemies of him, uh, of him through us. You see this, brother, the same flaw throughout redemptive history. The same problem, this identity issue. Brothers and sisters, who are you today? Whose are you? That's Zacharias. Zacharias has been battling giant barrenness for all of his adult life. And that may be the very reason why we read he was blank, he did so much for God. I don't want to in, in, suggest or impute upon him false motives but who knows this man was fighting with his wife against giant baroness their entire life you see brothers and sisters you gotta understand that when you're saved god becomes the center of your world hear this carefully when you're saved god is the center of your world it is god working through you it's god's story it's has to and thus to god be the glory and praise it's god working through us but we don't see that we're saved and now we think god's claimed us put us on his team and now says go fight go go face the world and i'll be here cheering you on and maybe if you pray hard enough and you're you know holy enough and worthy enough maybe i'll condescend and come down and help you as zacharias He fought against giant barrenness his entire life, such that the center of his world was himself. And when that happens, brothers and sisters, every commandment of God is a commandment that you have to do. Do you understand what I mean by that? You go, of course you have to do it, because it's God's word. Yeah, but don't misunderstand what I mean. When God says, go take the promised land, when when the center of a world is us, we go, I've got to go take the promised land. I gotta do this, and I can't face that giant. Zacharias, God's gonna give you a child. We've tried, Uh, Gabriel, God's not gonna do it. How, How can I know? We've already done this many times before. Pray, 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 pray. God, please condescend and help us. Brothers and sisters, when the center of your world is you, and not God, and that's not his grace, but you. You and I have a false identity because we think it's us interacting with the world in front of God when in reality is it's God Almighty fighting. He will fight for you while You keep saying. Fighting his battles through us. You see it in the New Testament. Acts 12. After Herod Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the Great, executed James. Peter, James, and John. James, the brother of John. Executed James. And all the Jews loved it, right? woo wonderful. Thank you, Herod. Herod therefore said, wow, I didn't realize that would give me such popularity amongst the Jewish people. I will arrest Peter and execute him. Unfortunately, it was the day, it was the week-long celebration of the Days of Unleavened Bread. So he couldn't execute him that time. He could have, but if he did, it would have just defeated the point. The Jews would be upset because he violated the, the feast of unleavened bread. So it was a Sabbath, the Sabbath week. So you can't do that. So he's like, okay, fine, I've arrested Peter, and Peter's dead in seven days. You know what God's people did? They gathered in prayer gatherings. You read Acts twelve and you go, interesting, it's very clear, it just wasn't one prayer gathering. It was it was spread out throughout Jerusalem. People gathered, and they just didn't have a one hour prayer meeting, and then afterwards the kids go play on jungle gyms, and the men and the women talked. They prayed all day. They prayed into the night, day after day after day. And then they come to the day, the first day of the week, evidently. The Sabbath's over. Unleavened bread's done. Acts twelve six. And on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, so it had to have been the first day of the week, To execute him, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. Behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter's side and roused him, saying, Get up, quickly. His chains fell off his his hands, and the angel said to him, Gird yourselves and put on your sandals, and he did did so. And and he said to him, Wrap your cloak uh, around you and follow me. He went out and continued to follow and he did not know what uh, that what was being done by the angel was real but thought that he was seeing a vision this 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 is a vision and when they had passed the first and the second guard they came to the iron gate that leads into the city which opened for them by itself and they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel departed from him And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel to rescue me um, and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary. And Mary was the mother of John, who's also called Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Where many were gathered together and were praying. So this is one such prayer gathering. And when he knocked at the door of the gate a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. So you've got to think of this gate, and there's a courtyard, and there's this house. So it's a, a nice house. And so she hears rallying at the gate. She goes, and she goes, who is it? You know, a soldier. And it's Peter's voice. I am Peter, right? <laughs> open the gate. And she's like, oh! So she runs inside to this prayer and says, Stop your prayers. Peter's at the gate. Now you know the story. And what did they say? You are out of your mind. I just love that. You're crazy. How many of you thought about that when it came to Zacharias when the angel said, You can have a child? Give me proof. You are out of your mind. Why did the early church do this? Because they thought when it came to Peter's deliverance, it was their job. It's their job. So we're praying, Lord, deliver Peter. They're not praying, thinking God's job is to deliver Peter. And he may deliver Peter by death or by life. We don't know. But we're going to pray such that when Peter comes, we can say, hey, God, God, praise be to God. Brothers and sisters, they're praying as if it all depended upon them. And how much had they prayed? Were they worthy of it? That can't be Peter because, why? It can't be a child because we're barren. Giant barrenness. When God says that we're going to handle barrenness, that's on your shoulders, Christian. When God says we're going to handle a, a, a lost job, a, you know, sick ch- children, um, difficulty, trial. When God says all these things, that's on you. That's how we live. And now it's like, oh, I got this burden and it's so heavy and it's weighing me down. God, help me, help me, help me. Have I said enough words for you to come down from your lofty stand and, and, and come beside me and lift me up? God, what must I do to be more worthy of your attention? That's how we view the world. We've got an identity problem, brothers and sisters. It is not us interacting with the world with God watching us. It is God interacting through us with the world and we get a front row seat. If that front row seat leads you to a hospital bed where you die, praise be to God. If that hospital seat or, or in that front row seat leads you to, to marching around a, a city and watching the, the, the you know, things fall, the walls fall, praise God. But brothers and sisters, get out of the business of being the Holy Spirit or God. Get out of the business of thinking that it's all about us, that the sin of the world is us. It's not, it's God. And the whole text of scripture is designed to highlight the greatness, the glory of God's grace and the greatness and glory of God's sovereignty and the greatness and glory of his goodness. It's all about God. This is his story, not ours. So from this passage, brothers and sisters, before us, we learn you can be well-versed in the word of God, knowing like the back of your hand, you can be a man or a woman of God in love with the Lord. You can be a man or a woman of God, a great faith, who takes, who takes on the world in prayer, like the early church. But until we see that it's not us versus the world, but God versus the world through us, we will always shrink back, feel alone, feel overwhelmed. We'll always shrink back in fear and disbelief, just like Zacharias in our passage. I want to I close by giving you verses to to supplement, to undergird the theology I'm trying to teach you today. Psalm 114. Close with a couple verses. Psalm 114. I know you've got them there in front of you here in a second. Psalm 114. Speaking of the Exodus. When Israel went forth from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language. It's a shocking language. Judah became his sanctuary. Israel his dominion. Do you understand what that means? When Israel left Egypt, God deigned to inhabit them, to go with them, to confront the world through them. That's what this text is saying. It's an incredible psalm. The sea, as, as the, the, this large group of people approached the sea, the sea... Looked and fled. What they what they see makes me think of Balaam. What they see, see God. Do you understand, brothers and sisters? When you and I leave this place, we're leaving with God in our presence, God within us, and it's God who's interacting with the world through us. So the 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 sea looked and fled. The Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams. The hills like lambs. Somewhat sarcastically now. What ails you, O sea, that you flee from the people of God? O Jordan, that you turn back from the people of God? O mountains, that you skip like rams at the presence of the people of God? O hills, like lambs? What what ails you? And we know the answer, because it's not the people of God. It's the God Almighty going with them and before them as they live in this world, and so the psalm ends, Tremble, O earth, before the Lord. Brothers and sisters, you've know, you got to take this in the context of the corporate people of God. Tremble, O earth, before the Lord. When you're dealing with a child of God, tremble. Non-Christian world. Because you're not dealing with them alone. Tremble before the God of Jacob who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of water. Brothers and sisters, that's your identity right there. Don't ever forget this. You are not the audience, or you're not the the show. Bad word. You're not in the arena serving, doing. God's in the arena through you. And thus, David, understanding this incredible truth, said this You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. David knew who was going to fight that battle, it was God Almighty. Through him, Joshua nine, Joshua's just witnessed the death of Moses, the most humble man in the world. He's now in charge with, to this, of this ragtag group of, of wanderers in the wilderness, right? Forty years later, Moses is dead. And what does God tell Joshua? Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not tremble or be dismayed. Why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Wherever you go, God is interacting, interfacing with the world through you. That's what we are. We're temples of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, right? We are temples of God. Acts 9, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. How would you like to be a Christian at this time? You're in Damascus and you hear Saul's coming. This madman, he's frenzied. He wants to wipe out every Christian and he has the full backing of Judaism. And you know what? Paul did go and he was responsible for the death of many people, which is why when you read the epistles and Paul's missionary journeys, understand he's ministering and fellowship with men and women who, whom, whom he killed their children, their husbands. Their parents, okay. that's this madman. And it came about that as he, Saul, journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, what? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Do you understand, brothers and sisters, it's not you and me against the world. It's Christ, God, against the world through you sanctifies everything. You live in the presence of God. That's the point of the temple curtain breaking, being ripped. The holy place, the Holy of Holies has now invaded regular living, the holy place, such that now we live and dwell in the presence of Almighty God. You're never alone. You're not left to do it on your own. And if you are doing it and you you feel like you're failing, you're not failing. God's bringing about his perfect will. So brothers and sisters, don't doubt. Don't be out of your mind. When God says, I'm going to make you holy, and you say, make me holy, and God gives you persecution... Don't, don't go crazy like Zacharias. Don't be nuts. But following your Lord, say, God, here I am. Use me. Now, that means success, praise be to God, how fun that will be. But if that means the life of Jeremiah, 40 years preaching, being confined to many cisterns, Isaiah being told, you have two messages, the message of grace and a message of woe. And it just so happens they never got around to grace, really. Isaiah primarily preached woe to his people for 55 plus years. If that's your ministry, brothers and sisters, here I am. Send me. Why did Zacharias doubt? Why do you doubt? We doubt he doubted because we don't understand whose we are. I close with the words of Paul Trip. What identity will you assign to yourself today? Will you deal with life based on what you assess you bring to the table or based on who you now are as a child of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Savior who is always with you in power and grace? Will you live in timidity and fear or in the courage of hope? Will you avoid challenges of faith and fear or move towards them, resting not in your own ability but in the presence, power, and grace of of the one who rules all and has become your father? That's the question. May God give you the grace to remember your identity as his child in those moments when remembering is essential. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have used, you've deigned to use flawed human beings to bring about your holy, eternal purpose. Father, I look at people in the world, movie stars or stars, and at times we find ourselves saying, oh, I wish I was like them. And yet, Lord, we know man at his best, at best is a man. Zacharias was a sinner, and yet, Lord, as we'll see next week, you did not cast him out. You loved him as you love us. Lord, give us the grace that through this study, of this day, and of the many passages that we looked at, that you transform our understanding of our identity. That, Lord, we'd be done with the Americanized version of Christianity which sees us as the, as the actors, us as the focus, the main character of the story. But, Lord, let us see ourselves as simply the bricks of a large temple, all of which you inhabit, all of which you love, all of which you care for, and through which all of it you bring about your eternal redemptive purpose. Father, what a wonderful message as we look at the rest of this gospel. You are the focus, God. We praise you for that. Now, Lord, transform us that we might believe. We go to the table now, Lord, thanking you that this table rightly t- declares what, we're, what we've seen this morning. Christ is the focus of our Passover. Christ is the focus of eternity. May we eat this bread, O oh Lord, and drink this cup, longing for the day we eat it and drink it with you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.